We do thank you for coming tonight. We appreciate your attendance. And for those who are visiting with us, we do bid you warmly welcome in the Lord's name. And we mean that most sincerely. Could I just remind you of the meeting tomorrow night? Um, Mr. Wallace Thompson from the Evangelical Protestant Society of Northern Ireland. He's going to attempt to preach tomorrow night on the subject, the reversal of the Reformation, asking a question, is it over? And of course, many, sadly, in the liberal and modernistic camp of the great broad house of Protestantism, believe it is. And um, we're, we're dismayed at that, and we're asking you to come again tomorrow night, if you can, and join with us as we close this Reformation week. We, we prayed much for this week, and we've asked the Lord's help and the Lord's blessing, and we believe that these Subjects that we've been dealing with from Sunday morning, I preached on the authority of Scripture alone, and we looked on Sunday evening on the conversion of Martin Luther. Those sermons are already on the church website if you want to listen to them. And uh, then Monday night, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and tonight and Friday night will um, be on the church website whenever our brother Mark Strong comes back from London Derry. So do remember that. Uh, and you can listen to these messages again and you can make them known to your family and your friends. We're really delighted again to have with us uh, Reverend John Greer from our Ballymena Church. We're, we're honoured uh, to have the Lord's servant. Uh, we believe him to be a, a man of God. He's a tremendous preacher. He's a great theologian. Uh, and uh, we, we are delighted to have fellowship with him again. And we're going to ask him now to come and preach God's word to us. Thank you. May I thank Mr. McLaughlin for his kind words of welcome, and it's good to be here again this evening for this uh, my second meeting in the series of this entire week, and I trust the Lord will bless you. We assure you of our prayers here and carried off as the Lord's work continues on. Uh, it's good to see the new building developing and uh, coming toward its final form, and as that all unfolds and as time goes by and you get to the opening of the building we pray that the Lord will really work and bless as you move into that new property and we trust that God will do great things and it is good to be here tonight again with you thank your minister for his invitation, the session the invitation to come and preach these two nights of your week and we pray that the Lord will really bless the word to every heart and to every soul thank you for your prayers for my sister who's in the ICU in the Royal and she was involved in an accident a few nights ago and was quite ill but she is showing some signs now of improvement Amen. and I trust that will continue on that she will be fully raised. It will not be for quite some time because she will have a lot to overcome uh, in terms of recovery but we, we trust that will all continue on and, and all will be well and we value your prayers for her. And I'm very Please now to see my cousin here, uh, who lives right nearby. Uh, his old name is also John. You're not to embarrass you, John, but uh, just I want to say that personally. I'm really delighted to see you here tonight and in this meeting. And so that's a special name. You know, our grandfather was John Greer. My father was John Greer. And uh, way back in the generations before that, there were other Johns down through time. And so here we have two John Greers in this meeting tonight. Amen. That's probably enough. <laughs> so with that, we'll turn to the Word of God. First uh, Peter chapter 2. I want to read from First Peter chapter 2, 
and reading down from verse 1 to verse number 10. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1 down to verse number 10. So if you have your Bible, turn there please. And it's a very important passage and it sets forth the subject I want to consider with you tonight. As has been announced, the priesthood of all believers. Very important subject and we pray that the Lord will help us to see it and understand it as it's brought before us in these verses. So we'll read the scripture now, 1 Peter 2, verse number 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings <coughs> as newborn babes, which indicates that these people to whom Peter is writing were not long converted, they were young in the faith, and that's how he describes them as newborn babes, spiritually speaking. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively or living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him, of course that chief cornerstone is Christ, it says, he that believeth on him, trusts in him, shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same was made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, <coughs> which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of these verses to our hearts. Now, can we just pray again and we'll look to the Lord for help and for his power among us. Our Heavenly Father, we bow in thy presence. We pause now to lift up our souls to thy throne of grace, knowing our need of thee, knowing our unworthiness and our sin even. And yet we thank thee for one who brings us nigh. We can say with the Apostle Paul, that we who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We thank thee for the great high priest of our salvation, our Lord Jesus, and for all that he has wrought in that capacity and has done and accomplished on behalf of sinners like we are. And we thank the Lord for what he makes of men and women as he takes them and he saves them and he unites them with himself and brings them into that blessed relationship with all the benefits of redemption. O oh Lord, I pray that you will bless thy word this evening as we look at it and we deal with this subject. 
We thank Thee for the rediscovery of truths like this. Amen. As Thy servants of old in Reformation times studied the Word of God and were able to see the truth as it is set before the mind of the Word of God. And we're brought to freedom and liberty. And we long, Lord, that the same freedom, the same liberty would be experienced by people today who are yet in the bondage of sin mm. and in their own darkness. O oh Lord, bring them out and bring them to know Thee. And so hear us, we pray, and bless us now as we wait in Thy presence. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Now, we are aware of the year in which we find ourselves in terms of the anniversary of the Reformation, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We are fully conscious, of course, that the Reformation had beginnings prior to the days of Martin Luther, the men of that particular era. It goes right back into earlier times to men like Wycliffe in England and Huss in uh, Czechoslovakia as it would be today these men stand out in the history of those times and then of course there were men who came afterwards after Luther, after Calvin beyond their day who continued on with the great work of reformation and reviving the work of God and bringing to the multitudes of Europe an understanding of the truth and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ we must have that awareness that prior to this great movement of the Reformation, which was essentially a spiritual <coughs> movement, there was deep darkness, there was much superstition, there was uh, a lack of understanding of what the Bible is, of what it says, of what it teaches. And so the Reformation was, contrary to charges made against it, it was not a political movement, it wasn't a movement of social reform, although it impacted politics and social life and every area of life as the gospel always does and brings liberty and freedom. It was a spiritual movement. It was men of God rediscovering the truth of the gospel and all that flows out of the gospel, all that is presented to us through the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as the papacy developed throughout the ages prior to the Reformation, its progress and its unscriptural dogmas really revolved around its priesthood. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that all members of her clergy, from the Pope himself down through all of the clerical levels that you would ever mention, supposedly uh, minister to and on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ as priests. Every one of them is a priest according to the teaching of the Church of Rome. Sometimes we talk about the priests of Rome, we think about the man at the local level, the parish level, and he does classify himself as a priest, but it goes right up to the very highest levels, even to the Pope himself, because he is the archpriest of the whole system. And from his level down through the cardinals and the archbishops and bishops and so on, every one of them is recognised as a priest within that system. The most recent uh, document that the Roman Catholic Church has presented in terms of an official catechism was published in 1994. It is called the Catechism 
of the Catholic Church. And in that catechism, which you actually can see online, just Google in that title and you'll find it coming up, you have a full presentation of all that she believes, all that she teaches, including her teaching on the priesthood. And it is important to underline this fact that we only need go to her own documents to find out the reality of what she believes and what she teaches in terms of her own dogmas and in regard to her priesthood. And in that document dealing with the section on the priesthood, in one of, one of the paragraphs it says, in the ecclesial, that is the church service, of the ordained minister. Now she means by the ordained minister, the priest. In the ecclesial service of the ordained minister, it is Christ himself who is present to his church. Now we listen to that again. In the ecclesial service, in other words, when a priest goes to his uh, place where he administers the mass and so forth, uh, he is there as a priest, but according to the teaching of the Church of Rome, Christ himself is in that ordained minister, as they put it. And it's important to notice this because that really means that the Lord Jesus Christ is present. It's not that he is merely represented by that priest. Their dogma means that the Lord Jesus Christ is present in that building where the priest is officiating in that priest. The document goes on to say in that same paragraph that he's there as the head of his body, the shepherd of his flock, high priest of the redemptive sacrifice, teacher of truth. This is what the church means by saying that the priest, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, acts. Then you've got a Latin phrase, in persona Christi. And that Latin phrase, in persona Christi, actually literally means that the priest acts as Jesus and God. That's the teaching of the 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church, as it has been her teaching down through time with regard to the priesthood. So it is actually saying that it is the same priest, Christ Jesus, whose sacred person, his minister, truly represents. Now the minister, by reason of the consecration which he has received, is truly made light to the high priest and possesses the authority to act in the power and place of the person of Christ himself. And so the Catholic Church teaches this dogma called uh, holy orders. One of them is the priesthood. And they say that the priest is consecrated or set aside uh, by means of a certain ceremony. And the sacrament of holy orders therefore communicates a, sac a sacred power which is none other than that of Christ. So the Church of Rome truly believes that Christ is present as the priest officiates in and through him and he is there in persona Christi. He is there and Christ is there with him in his very uh, position as a priest of that Roman Catholic system. And so these are, just a two, these are just a few examples of 
what we find in that catechism and the depths of this particular teaching, the erroneous depths, may I say, of this particular teaching concerning the priests of the Roman Catholic system. And through her perversion of the word of God, and on the basis of her arrogant and deceitful system, Rome's priesthood has a form and a ceremony that deceives people. And the priest is regarded with the greatest esteem by the devout Roman Catholic, by those who are inducted by this particular teaching. He's regarded highly. He's esteemed highly. He's looked upon as being a mediator. It is Jesus Christ, the Roman Catholic individual believes, who is right there in the Catholic Church or the confessional itself, where he's hearing confession or he's offering Mass. This is Jesus Christ who is there in the person of that priest. And so we must underline that this gives the Roman Catholic priesthood a very sinister power that is designated, or that is designed rather, to dominate and control what the Catholic Church calls the laity, which simply means the people, the Roman Catholic people. And by this means... The adherence of those who are devoted to the Catholic system is actually secured. An adherence that can only be broken by the intervention of God in their hearts and in their lives. They are under the control and the dominance of the priest in their parish, that is the devout Catholic folk, and they have that fear of him, they have that regard for him, because they have been taught, as I've just quoted to you, that he as he officiates, is not merely representing the Lord Jesus, but he's the very embodiment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is there in that priest. And for this reason, there's this fear, there's this superstitious belief that they must obey the priest if they are to find and they are to have or possess eternal life. Now how different is the teaching of the Word of God on the subject of priesthood in relation to the true New Testament church. In the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit presents in the most unmistakable fashion the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest of his people. That is one of the glorious truths of the gospel. Indeed, that is cardinal and central to the entire gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ in coming into this world and taking our human nature into union with his deity, became our mediator. And in becoming our mediator, he discharges that role of being between us and God through his own high priestly ministry. And in that ministry, he has done a number of things. And we covered some of this last night. He has given perfect obedience to the law that you and I have broken. That constitutes us as sinners before a holy God. We have broken the law of God. And therefore we are sinners and we are guilty. But Christ has taken that law and has fulfilled it perfectly. And then he has made atonement for our sins in his death. Where he offered that one true sacrifice. That is his own body opened up or offered up. His entire humanity offered up to God in death and in the atoning work of the cross. Therefore, he made atonement for sin. He then rose from the dead 
And he was brought again from the dead by his own power and also by the decree of his father and by the power of the Holy Spirit to signal that the work that he had done in life and in death is not only finished, but is perfectly sufficient to save our souls. And what a marvelous and glorious truth that is. How much we need a Savior. Where will we find him? How can we be right with God? As we saw last night, how can we be justified? And the answer, of course, is in the gospel of God's grace that in Christ the needs of our hearts are met through his blessed work in life and in death and in the resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand. He has been exalted, has entered into heaven. He is there to represent us and pray for us on the basis of that atoning work that he did at the place called Calvary. And so, in the book of Hebrews, we have Christ presented as the great high priest. The book of Hebrews is the counterpart of the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Because in Leviticus, you've got a full presentation of the whole Old Testament priesthood. With a high priest, the first of whom of course, was Aaron, and then the ordinary priests, his sons and the sons of his successors, and all that they did, all the ceremonies they performed, it's all set out in the book of Leviticus. The work of the priest, the sacrifice, all the details are there. I know that when you read the book of Leviticus, in many ways it's mind-boggling. The detail is enormous. You read through that book and you wonder, what is this all about? I say to you tonight, to discover the meaning of Leviticus, read the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is the Holy Spirit's commentary on the book of Leviticus. His explanation of Leviticus. And therefore, in Hebrews, we are shown the fulfillment of the Levitical ceremonies and Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices that were presented in those times. It's all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But neither in Hebrews or anywhere else in the New Testament is it taught that Christ has instituted a priestly order such as is found within the Roman Catholic system. Now I know that the Roman Catholic people sincerely and heartily believe what they are told. But you see, my dear friend, you can be sincerely wrong and that's the crux of the matter you can be very sincere about something that is wrong something that is false but being sincere about falsehood doesn't change it into truth and when we measure the teaching of the church of Rome on the priesthood alongside the word of God we find clearly that the only ministry appointed by Christ for his church, for the benefit of the church, is the ministerial office of the teaching elder. In other words, the pastor of the Lord's flock. Taking that role of being pastor or being minister, it is that office that the Lord has set up that I have just referred to as the teaching elder. You have the ruling elder, the man who's chosen from among the congregation to be an elder of Christ's church. We've got the teaching elder. 
And what a privileged call that is to be a teaching elder in the church of Jesus Christ. But that is the only ministry that you discover in the New Testament with regard to a permanent office and a continual office in terms of an office that has oversight of the people in that sense of ministering to them through the word of God, praying for them, pastoring them. And therefore there's no mention, not even the slightest mention, of a priesthood such as you find in the Catholic system. But there is, on the other hand, taking the Lord's people in general, there is a priesthood recognized in the New Testament Taking, leaving aside the Lord's, that's the high priest of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Leaving his priesthood aside, we have another priesthood spoken of, and we find it here in 1 Peter chapter 2, where I've read with you this evening. In verse number 5, it says so clearly, Ye also as lively are living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Or down in verse number Nine, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And so we have this priesthood mentioned here. It's called a holy priesthood. It's called a royal priesthood. And we find it in this little letter, Peter's first letter, where he's addressing ordinary people like us, men and women of the first century in the Christian church, scattered throughout vast regions. And the very first verse of the book tells us, here, there, and yonder in the world of that day. And they're all referred to here. Ye are a holy priesthood. Ye are a royal priesthood. And there's no other priesthood among men recognized in the New Testament by God and by the Holy Spirit but that priesthood. You find that these words are very much the same as what you have in Revelation chapter 1. In verse number 6 where it is said that Christ has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. And so you have similar words there. Kings and priests, a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. We are set apart when God saves us. When he brings us into this relationship with Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We become priests unto God in a very real way, as these verses are showing us. And so we find, therefore, that there is a priesthood in the New Testament. It is comprised of a company, as I said, of ordinary people, sinners saved by grace, who are made a priesthood that is both royal and holy. Now, a priesthood has a work to do. I want you to see these things tonight, and especially this matter of the work, of the ministry, that you as Christians, if you are a child of God, if you are saved by God's grace, you are part of this priesthood. Listen to it. Look at it. Think about it. God says that you are part of this holy, royal priesthood by virtue of his saving work in your soul. By virtue of your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a privilege, again, I say that is. Amen. Taken from sin taken from among men, set apart unto God, becoming a Christian, saved by grace, and now told that you are part of the true, the genuine priesthood that is found within the New Testament church and is comprised 
of all those whom the Lord has saved by his grace and by his power. Dear child of God, cherish that thought tonight with all your heart and with all your soul. But let's develop this a little more because as I said there, there has to be a ministry for those who are the priesthood of God. And look at verse 5 once more. And notice what it goes on to say. Where it says, ye are a, a holy priesthood. Then it says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, what Peter is describing here, let's put it in plain terms, is who and what a Christian is and what God has appointed for the Christian to do. A Christian is a person who's brought into this relationship with Jesus Christ so that individual is recognized as a priest unto God and has a certain ministry or work to perform. And here it is, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So let's look at these words, at this matter of these spiritual sacrifices. That's where I want to really focus tonight and the rest of the time that remains to me. These sacrifices. Number one, I want to look at them in terms of analyzing what they actually are. Because it speaks here of offering up spiritual sacrifices. Do you take the very word offer, or the double word, offer up, and immediately you think of offering a sacrifice, or offering an offering unto God. And you are being told that you have been called by God's grace. He has saved you out of the world, out of fallen humanity, he has brought you in among us people. He has given you eternal life. The Holy Spirit lives in your heart. You're reconciled to God by the death of his son, by the blood of Calvary. And here you are now in this marvelous position of being able to serve God. Serve him as a priest and offer up to God spiritual sacrifices. Notice in that same verse, verse number five, it says, Ye also as lively are living stones are built up a spiritual house. Just look at that. You see, we loosely say that this building is a church or your new building across the way is the new free Presbyterian church in Duff. And people understand what we're saying to some degree, but you know, strictly speaking, that is not right. And that is why our forefathers called the place where they met the meeting house. If you go back far enough, and I can remember in my boyhood days, my father would refer to the meeting house. Because that's how they saw it and they recognized it. The meeting house, because the building of stones and mortar or uh, blocks and mortar, whatever the material is, the building is the meeting house. And the church is the people who meet in that meeting house. And that's what Peter's saying here. He says, you're built up a spiritual house. The word of God refers to Christians, to people truly saved as a house. In the sense that they comprise the company among whom the Lord dwells. When a person is a Christian, the Lord is in that person's heart. You take a company of believers and the concept is then multiplied. 
whether it's 20 or 30 or 100 or whatever, where you have 100 Christians meeting together, they comprise the true house of God. They form the true church of God. It's people whom the Bible is talking about here when it refers to a spiritual house. And then it calls on this priesthood who are in the work of offering up sacrifices to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word for sacrifices there, where it speaks of spiritual sacrifices, the word signifies the act of offering. And therefore the full expression, the full phrase, spiritual sacrifices, simply speaks of the act of making spiritual offerings unto God. And they are unto God because it goes on to say that they are acceptable to God. And so we're going to find out what these spiritual sacrifices are as we seek to analyze these words and think about them. And we go through the New Testament and we find that there are actually five main sacrifices that the Christian offers up to God. Now imagine this. Did you think tonight before you came to this meeting that God looks on you as a priest? does and he calls you a priest and he says you're part of this holy and this royal priesthood and furthermore did you ever imagine that God speaks of you as someone who's engaged in the work of offering up spiritual sacrifices unto him ah my friend what a marvelous thing we have before us in these wonderful words now what are these sacrifices well there's the sacrifice of prayer Really, the high priest of the Old Testament or the ordinary priest was a man in whose ministry there was much prayer. He would get before God. He would pray for the congregation. He would go into the holy place there in the temple or in the tabernacle of Moses and he would cry to God and the high priest was fully involved in this. He made the sacrifice and then he went to pray. And we find that's true of Christ. What is Jesus Christ doing tonight? What is he doing without intermission? He who has returned to heaven to take his place there at God's, the Father's right hand. Why is he there? Hebrews seven twenty five answers that question. Where it says that he is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth he continually lives to make intercession for us or to pray for us that's what jesus christ is doing he's praying in heaven even as i speak in this meeting house tonight in this particular gathering the lord jesus christ is in heaven the word of god assures us of this and yet we here on earth this holy royal priesthood, we are to do the same thing as our high priest in heaven prays at God's right hand, you and I on earth, as his people, we are to pray. Now there are too many verses to turn to, to verify, to underline the truth of what I am saying. There are many of them. But you see, when God saves a man, he sends the Holy Spirit into that man's heart. And that man begins to pray. A ministry of prayer is born in his soul. He doesn't have to be taught to pray. He wants to pray. He's not following a prayer book. 
And the prayers may be fine that somebody has written down. I'm not saying they aren't. But he realizes, I have got in my soul desires and longings and pleas that have been created by the Holy Spirit and have been born there by his work. And I want to bring them to the Lord. I want to cry out to God. The spirit of prayer is there. And therefore he doesn't pray because he's forced to do it. He prays because he wants to pray. That's the true New Testament priest. A ministry of prayer. Offering the sacrifice of prayer. And what a privilege that is for the child of God. Because he has direct access to God in heaven. And that is not said with any sense of pomposity or pride. That is said with the greatest gratitude. Here we are on earth. And maybe you come to this meeting tonight and God seems to be very remote to you. But let me tell you, my friend, there's a direct line to God in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Mediator. Christ brings us nigh. Put your trust in Christ and immediately you have the right of access to God in heaven, to pray to him, to speak with him, and to talk with him. And so you have access to God. You are invited to come to him. He says in the same book of Hebrews that I've mentioned already tonight a number of times, there in Hebrews chapter 4, let us come boldly. And the word means with confidence. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Paul says in Philippians 4 that the Christian can make all his needs known. He says there in Philippians 4 verse 6, in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The New Testament priest is therefore in the position of praying for himself and praying for others and praying for the work of God. What a vital ministry that is. Here's one of these spiritual sacrifices, the sacrifice of prayer. Think about it that way. Coming to the Lord, just getting before him and speaking to him as friend with friend on the ground of the shed blood and through the merits of our Saviour, knowing that one is heard and prayer will be answered as it's brought before the heavenly throne, the sacrifice of prayer. I can only mention these very quickly. There's the spiritual sacrifice of praise. That's another of the sacrifices that the Lord's people are to offer. Hebrews 13, 15, there Paul says it so clearly. By him, that is by Christ, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The sacrifice of praise. Think of how the Lord Jesus Christ offered that sacrifice when he was on this earth. You know the last thing the Lord did before he left the upper room? And went out into Gethsemane and on to Calvary? He actually sang. Matthew 26 and verse number uh, 20 or verse number 30 tells us this that before he left the upper room he and the disciples were told they sang a hymn the word actually means psalm in that particular verse 
or signifies one of the Psalms. And there's our Savior. You know, there's a marvelous thing there. He's going out today. He's going to Gethsemane first where he will agonize and he will sweat the great drops of blood. And he goes from there to the high priest's house and to Pilate's judgment hall and eventually to Calvary where he's nailed to the cross. And he will die the agonizing death and the wrath of God will fall upon him and he'll be punished for sins that are not his own. And yet before he goes to it all, he sings. Why is he singing? He's offering the sacrifice of praise unto his father because he rejoices that he has the great and glorious ministry of satisfying the father's justice. And he has the great and glorious privilege of purchasing for himself a bride, a people to be his own. That's why he's singing. Now on the other end of the scale, therefore, as we hear our Savior sing, as he goes to die, and he's singing over the lights of us, why then do we hold back in the offering up of the sacrifice of praise? Even taking into account the fact that the Lord Jesus sings every time a soul is saved. He does, you know. Have you ever understood the meaning of those words in Luke 15? Where it says that there's joy in the presence of the angels in heaven over a sinner that repents. And very often those words are misquoted. As if it's the angels who are singing. Now maybe they are. And undoubtedly I would say they are. But it says there's joy in the presence. Who's singing? Whose joy is in view? It's the joy of Christ. Every time a man is saved. Every time a soul is brought out of darkness and sin. And reconciled to God. Jesus Christ sees the fulfillment of the work of the cross in that person's life. He sees the fruit of his death coming forth. And therefore he rejoices. He offers up the sacrifice of praise even in heaven. Never mind on earth. Why are we going to heaven? What will we do in heaven? When that time comes, we are going there to enter into the eternal song. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And so, brethren and sisters, in heaven we will be offering up spiritual sacrifice of praise throughout eternity. Therefore, let us not hold back when we're here on this earth. You might say, well, I can't sing, or I can't hold a note, the way people put it. That may be very true. I understand what you're saying. But let me tell you, dear friend, sing anyhow. Sing anyhow. Maybe the others will drown you out. So don't worry about it. Sing the Lord's praise. Offer up the sacrifice of praise. There's also the spiritual <coughs> sacrifice of preaching. Preaching is a spiritual sacrifice. In Philippians 2, uh, verse 17, Paul says it there. And in Romans chapter 15, I want you just to look at those two verses with me. In Romans 15, 15 and 16, two 
Very interesting verses. Romans 15, verse 15, where Paul is talking about his own ministry, and he says this, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, Romans 15, verse 15, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. And that's preaching. Ministering the gospel of God. Then he says that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Do you notice that? He speaks of ministering the gospel. That's preaching the gospel. And what happens when you preach the gospel? What happens when it's preached faithfully and leaving aside the, the number of people who might be converted, what happens when the gospel is faithfully preached is God is pleased to use it to bring sinners to, to himself. And it's spoken of here as a spiritual sacrifice. The offering up of the Gentiles. That is the realm where Paul ministered among the Gentile peoples, the heathen nations. And he saw huge numbers converted. But he sees it as a, an offering to God. They're not his converts. He didn't save them. It's God's work. And therefore, these people he sees saved under his ministry, he sees it as a means of glorifying God because he offers them up to God as a spiritual sacrifice, the sacrifice of preaching, the sacrifice of giving. The psalmist says, Psalm 96, as we come before the Lord to worship him, we're to bring an offering and come before him. And so the New Testament and the Old Testament both teach the principle of giving to the work of God, our financial offerings to the work of God. It's something I don't want to major on because I believe that when a person knows the Lord and loves the Lord, then naturally and spontaneously that person will give of his or her income to support the cause of Christ, the work of God, it is clearly taught in the Bible. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord looks upon it then as a spiritual sacrifice to be offered up unto God. And so that's the fourth one. Then the fifth one. I said there are five I want to mention. There is the spiritual sacrifice of a humble heart, a broken heart. You know, maybe the greatest of them all, the most important of them all, it's the one that David mentions in Psalm 51. And he says in verse number 16, Thou desirest not sacrifice, else will I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. He's living in the day, you see, when the Israelite brought his animals to the temple or the tabernacle and they were offered up to God. That kind of sacrifice. And he realizes, well, that's not what really counts with God. That's not what the Lord is looking for from me, David is saying. Here's what he wants, verse number 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. What is a broken and a contrite heart? It's a heart, it's a soul. The heart or the soul within a man or a woman who has come to an awareness of his or her sin. And is broken, humbled, repentant, and comes before the Lord and casts, casts themselves 
before the Lord. In true faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. My dear friend, there's the sacrifice of a humble heart. And the Christian must maintain that humble heart. Well, yes, it begins when we take the step and we come to the Lord and we ask him to save us. Humbling ourselves before him. Seeing that we're lost. Seeing that we're on the wrong road in life. Seeing that we are bound for a Christless eternity in our sin. And we come and we humble ourselves and we cry to God for mercy. And we plead with him to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's the broken, the contrite heart. It says here that the Lord will never despise it. The analysis of these sacrifices, here they are. Others could be mentioned, but these are the vital ones. The acceptability of these sacrifices. What does Peter say here in this great verse in 1 Peter 2? He speaks of offering up spiritual sacrifices. Then he says, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ. And he uses the word acceptable. And so it's very simple. It's very clear. It's on the page here. Acceptable to God. The acceptability of these sacrifices. And the sense of the words is, that as we come to God with our spiritual sacrifices, prayer and praise, the preaching of the word, our giving to his work, our humble broken hearts, they are made acceptable to God through Christ. Now, do you see the connection coming out again? Christ is the great high priest. We are this holy priesthood that is simply that we're set apart by God to be his and to serve him. And we bring our offerings, our sacrifices to the Lord. But how, can, how could God, in all his holiness, accept my prayers or my praise or whatever? And I say it this, that way because what you and I do, even as Christians, is performed by people who are most imperfect. You know, people have this strange notion. I mean, people in general. Unconverted people I'm talking about here. People who don't maybe even go to church or no interest in Christianity. They have this misconception that a Christian is a person who's perfect. Yeah. Now, no Christian believes that. That's right. Not one of us. Because we know differently. Mm. I remember when I lived in America, one day I came up behind the car <laughs> And you know what a bumper sticker is. <coughs> and on that car, on the bumper, there was a sticker. And it said this. A Christian is not a person who is perfect, but a person who is forgiven. And that is true. The Lord has forgiven the sins of his people. And yet we know that we are yet imperfect. As the bumper sticker said, we're very imperfect. You see, the, the, the child of God, there's the moment of conversion when we come to trust in Christ as Savior and Redeemer. We're born again, the Bible says. We haven't brought out of darkness into light. All these terms are used. There's a new beginning. Oh, what a day that is. When you take that step and you trust the Lord and you're brought to know the Savior. But that is only the beginning. Yes, as we saw last night, in that moment, 
the sinner's justified and declared righteous, but God then continues to work in the realm of, of what we call sanctifying that person, dealing with uh, that person's life and, and behavior and, and showing to that individual you must conform yourself to the will of God and there's a desire to do it of course there's a learning a yearning to be like the Lord and it goes on from there growth and grace and development of spiritual character and, and all these things oh when we are saved we're stumbling and we know so little but the Lord leads us on you see and yet we know that there's no perfection in this life only at death that that perfection is then found and we are brought home to be with the Lord in heaven and so we ask the question how, how could God accept what I pray or I sing or my efforts to preach or whoever you're dealing with, how could God accept that and here's the answer acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If we take the sacrifice of praise, and this might help you who think you're not a good singer, turn to First Chronicles, sorry, Second Chronicles 29, verses 27 and 28. A remarkable statement we have here. Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 27. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn to it. Listen to what it says. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. Now here are wonderful words. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped and the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Do you notice that? In Hezekiah's day, as he reformed the worship of Israel, and they went to offer their praise unto God, it was in conjunction with the burnt sacrifice. And the whole way through the offering of the burning of the sacrifice, praise was offered up. But we put it another way, the whole time they were singing and blowing their trumpets, the burnt offering was being offered up to God. And there's the gospel truth. There's what we're seeing here in this verse. Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What gives merit to our praying, to our singing, to all of our work that we do for the Lord? These spiritual sacrifices, what gives them their value? Is it how sincere we are? No. We must be sincere, yes. But sincerity and the Christian's part doesn't add an iota of value to your prayer, your singing, your preaching. No, your witnessing. So what gives value to our praying? It is the precious blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of our Savior. I want you to go to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And look with me in Revelation chapter 8 at verses 3 and 4. Because in these two verses we have the proof of what I am saying. Uh, Revelation and chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. Let me read the verses to you. It says, Another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, 
ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Interesting language, wonderful language. John looks into heaven and he sees this angel. Now the word angel, remember, means messenger. And this angel comes and he stands at the altar. And he's got a golden censer. What is he? He's a priest. Who is he? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he doing? He is taking the incense that he offers. And with it he mingles the prayers of the saints. That is, of the Lord's people. This holy priesthood that we're talking about tonight, their sacrifices, and here it's prayer again, they are acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ. And there's a glorious and a powerful proving of that fact in these verses. You see, my dear friend, when we are brought to know the Lord, we are in union with Christ. As I've said a number of times tonight, and I do so deliberately, because this is the very key to understanding all this. Why God would accept us and accept our spiritual sacrifices, whatever one we care to mention, is because we are joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And as we pray, we pray through Christ's name. As we sing, we sing through Christ and by the merit of who he is and what he has done as we preach the word. It is on the ground of the atonement that we preach. No matter what the spiritual sacrifice is, it is done with an eye to Christ our high priest. And we as this holy royal priesthood, we, we, we minister and we serve God on the basis of who Jesus Christ is as our high priest and what Jesus Christ has done as our high priest. And God accepts us and God accepts our offering of praise or prayer or whatever. That's the acceptability of these sacrifices. That shows to every Christian here tonight a wonderful lesson. You see, when you go down to pray, and it may be either in private or in public that this happens and it happens to every true child of God. When you get down to pray, aren't there times when you find there is this awful hardness? And also you feel this sense of unworthiness. And you tell yourself, or you hear the whisper of the old devil, what's the point of you praying? The Lord will never hear you. And yet, my friend, that is a lie. It may just be a few stumbling words. It may not amount to much in terms of eloquence or verbosity or whatever. But that doesn't matter. You come and you talk to the Lord. Or you sing to the Lord. And you may be out of tune. But let me tell you something. The merits of Christ's precious blood. Give your praying. Give your praise. Give your witnessing. A value that they can't have otherwise. God hears you. And God accepts what you are doing. And therefore be encouraged Christian. And function as a priest unto God with all your heart. Don't hold back. But come and serve the Lord diligently. And then as I close tonight. I just want to speak to you in the final 
few minutes about the acknowledgement in these sacrifices. We've looked at the analysis of them. They are spiritual sacrifices. We've looked at the acceptability of them. They're through Christ accepted. But the acknowledgement in these sacrifices, what is that acknowledgement? Surely it's an acknowledgement of God's mercy toward us. As we come with our praying and our praising, or whatever it might be, we are acknowledging how much we owe the Lord. And I say to you tonight, dear child of God, you owe the Lord, you owe the Lord all for all that you are as a Christian. You owe him everything, therefore, with regard to your spiritual state and your standing and the fact that your sins are forgiven and you're on the road to heaven and you will never be in hell. You, you owe all that to the Lord and therefore you come with your sacrifices acknowledging that this is so. You see, when we understand this, this is why there's a willing heart in the believer, in the child of God. There's a willing heart. In, in Exodus 35, there's a statement made, and it reads this way. The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord. Even, or sorry, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring. Notice the word willing. A willing offering. And then we use the term a free will offering. And rightly so. Because where there is a heart that has been made to taste of the goodness of God. And experience the power of forgiveness. And God's grace. A willingness is born. And there's an acknowledgement of all that God has done. In our service for him. In our work for him. In our ministry for him. And therefore... Let us see that tonight. Think of those words that the Lord said to the disciples. Freely ye have received. Freely give. And that's our entire giving. It's not the money I'm talking about here. It is giving yourself. And giving all that you are. To serve the Lord. Acknowledging thereby. Here is the demonstration of my awareness of how much I owe to thee. Let us be the best we can be in our ministry for Christ. In our day and time, put your heart and soul into the work of God, into the cause of Christ, and serve him as he gives you grace to do. My dear friend, if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, that's where you need to start. Give yourself to Christ. Come to him. You have everything to gain. You have nothing to lose. You'll gain eternal life. You'll gain heaven. You'll be immediately forgiven. You will be on the road to glory. And spend eternity in the Lord's presence. Contrast. The awful contrast is to lose your soul. Mm 
perish. Don't do that. But seek the Lord while he may be found. Let us bow in prayer and we'll come to a close in this time tonight as we just bow and we seek the Lord. And Father, we thank thee for thy presence with us here this Amen. evening and for the help given. And well, Lord, we acknowledge that this is all of you and we can do nothing without thee. Lord, bless us tonight. Bless thy dear people who are here and encourage their hearts, lead them on with God. And may we function as that holy royal priesthood, offering up our spiritual sacrifices. May we see ourselves in that way, maybe in a fresh manner. We need to be reminded of this, Lord. Lord, give us grace to see it and give us grace then to put it into action. And Lord, bless thy work and thy people and thy cause. Search every heart in this place. No, Lord, we pray that those who may not know thee as Saviour and Lord might be drawn to the Christ of God and even this very night be saved for time and eternity. Pards with thy blessing, keep thy hand upon the meeting tomorrow night and this work in general. May it go forward, may it be blessed of God and may there be much done for thy glory. For this we pray in Jesus' name and for his eternal praise.